0: really foster long-term renewal inside of our city, so this is a good first step for us. Um, This morning we're going to continue our Marriage Matters series, and uh, I was greeted in my office as I was uh, preparing this morning with a a wonderful good news announcement from my daughter that the notebook now is on Netflix. All right, so um, actually I've never seen the notebook, so I know that that would make me like probably a bad husband, but so we'll probably check that out. Um, But In that same vein, as we're talking about marriage, um, it's impossible for our definition and expectations of love not to be affected by Hollywood to some degree or another. I mean, uh, in the movies, it's absolutely portrayed as this inescapable magnetism that brings people together. Um, and it draws not only a couple together, but everyone that's around them kind of gets sucked into their own orbit. And most movies focus in on that moment of attraction and where people come together. It wouldn't be a story without a few obstacles to overcome, but for the most part, I mean, romantic comedies, they end at the end of the couple getting together, and it's just assumed that they live happily ever after, and so um, if you are a married couple, or if you've ever been in a married couple's home, um, you know that (laughs) like, it doesn't take longer than about a day to realize that there's there. (laughs) The happily ever after comes with lots of speed bumps along the road. And this morning we're going to talk about just how do we experience the healing power of truth that comes to us in the midst of imperfections that are revealed in our own character. Tim Keller, in his book, um, The Meaning of Marriage, he tells the story of uh, just in the 1800s, people would gather at masquerades and balls, and they would wear masks until midnight, and they could go, and they could be as free as they wanted to be. They could have conversations, but at midnight, and this is where the Cinderella story comes from, everyone had to take off their mask and reveal who they really were, and he said, that's a lot like what marriage is about, right? There's this moment where you can have all of these things that lead to attraction and coming together. But there's a point inside of marriage when the mask has to come off. And this is what he said. He says, what in that moment are the flaws that your spouse will see? You may be a fearful person with a tendency towards great anxiety. You may be a proud person with a tendency to be opinionated and selfish You may be an inflexible person with a tendency to be demanding and sulky if you don't get your way. You may be an abrasive or a harsh person who people tend to respect more than they love. You may be an undisciplined person with a tendency to be unreliable and disorganized. You may be an oblivious person who tends to be distracted and insensitive, and unaware of how you come across to others. You may be a perfectionist with a tendency to be judgmental and critical of others, also to get down on yourself. You may be impatient, irritable, with a tendency to hold grudges or lose your temper too often. You may be a highly independent person who does not like to be responsible for the needs of others, who dislikes having to make joint decisions, who most definitely hates to ask for help yourself. You may be a person who wants far too much to be liked and so you shade the truth. You can't keep secrets and you work too hard to please everyone. You may be thrifty but at the same time miserly with money and too unwilling to spend it on your own needs appropriately and ungenerous to others. So there's a moment in all relationships where the mass comes off. And that's not only in marriage, that's in all relationships, where who we are on the inside begins to show. And what we do and who we turn to in those moments of imperfection will determine the quality and the joy of our relationships. This morning, we're going to look at James chapter 4 that helps us understand where these conflicts come from that so easily sneak up on us inside of our lives. And what we're going to see is there's this beautiful reality for Christian relationships and Christian marriage that, that despite the reality of sin and quarrels and fighting and conflict, that a couple can actually be closer as a result of working through things and seeing Jesus show up in a big way and bring redemption and healing. Forgiveness is the greatest gift that anyone can give their spouse where people are seen with their mask off and they're able to say, listen, I see who you are at the base of who you are. And I still love you and accept you, not based on what you've done, but based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where we have a real opportunity, whether you are married or single. Um, if you're single and you think there is any opportunity that you will ever be married, this is uh, you can consider this your first session of premarital counseling. This would be, if you were in my home, if you were in my living room, this would be one of the first passages I would take you to, because this really helps us when those moments of dis illusionment come into practice so if you have your Bibles open to James chapter 4 would you stand with me we're going to read verses 1 through 6 what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and you do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But this is the hope. But He gives more grace. Therefore, he sa- it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, so much right now, we want to heed James' invitation just to humble ourselves before you and humble ourselves before one another to realize that fights and quarrels come from the inside. They come from our passions and our desires that so easily are centered on anything and everything but you. But I also love this truth that you give us more grace. I I pray that grace would flow to us um, in our marriages, in our relationships, and that we would be um, filled to overflowing with who you have created us to be. To do that, we need you to show up um, to really perform this word inside of us so that we can dwell in peace and in unity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we get into James chapter 4, there's a couple of connections that I think we have to make. There's some underlying assumptions that we need to bring into the text. First, James 4. I mean, this is a picture of a church that's absolutely falling apart at the seams. There are rich people that are oppressing poor people, and there are fights and factions and quarrels going all along. So this isn't a, a text that's particularly about marriage, but this is a text about how the world works. Um, if you have relationships and they are strained, right? If you have a friendship, the the reason that they become strained are the same reason that marriage quarrels and conflicts exist, right? I mean, if you have been a part of a relationship that has absolutely come off at the hinges, the reason in that that happens is found in James chapter 4. So James chapter 4 helps us to understand where conflict comes from, but more importantly, it gives us a way of escape, and it gives us a way of hope that there is grace for those that humble themselves and run to see the grace of the Savior. The second thing that I think we have to keep in mind as we 're thinking about marriage in the marriage context is that God is the one that's most passionate about marriage, right Marriage was god 's idea. Not only is he most passionate about this idea of marriage, if you are married here this morning, he is the one that 's most committed and most passionate about your marriage, so he's given us James chapter four as this way of escape, and it's also to guard us and to allow us to enter into all of the gifts that he has for us inside of marriage. And there's just just this, this burden that I have this morning that that for everyone, whether you're married or single, that today would be about healing, right? The only reason that God ever exposes what's going on inside of our hearts and inside of our relationships is because he wants to bring redemption and he wants to bring healing. And that's what James chapter 4 is all about. God is the most committed to our marriages so much so that he sent his only son into the world to die for everything that wants to pull our marriages apart. He hasn't left us to do this in our own strength or in our own wisdom. And the the hope that we have this morning is that there is no one that is beyond the hope and the grace of God. Like God specializes in raising the dead. He loves to bring dead things to life, cause barren things to begin to bear fruit. And that's my prayer for all of us this morning. But marriage at its base level is about unity and it's about oneness. In Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, there is this picture of two people becoming one flesh. That's a physical representation of a spiritual reality. There's a oneness that's supposed to be experienced inside of marriage, and it's multi-layered and multi-faceted. There is um, a spiritual oneness that we're supposed to experience between husband and wife, where we, at our best, are partnering together with God in our spouses becoming the person that God's created them to be. Like, That's a a spiritual oneness that God's created us for. But there's also a relational oneness that we're to experience where we, as Ray Ortland says, have an unaccused existence before our spouse, where our marriages are meant to be this place of safety and intimacy and joy, where we accept one another not based on our own performance, but we accept each other based on what Jesus has done for us. And when those things are flowing together, it is a beautiful, picture, and it is a wonderful thing to experience. And then the culmination of all of that oneness is just the oneness that we get to experience in sexual intimacy, right? That is the fruit, and that is the culmination of the oneness that we experience when we are united both in our spiritual and our relational oneness. And God has designed every marriage to experience that and no less There is also a very real threat, and that's what James chapter 4 is all about, to that oneness, that there's this reality that there are passions that are at war within us that threaten to pull us apart. And if we are unaware of that, right, I mean, we, we always just think that happily ever after happens very naturally, but listen to this quote by Tim Keller, and he helps us to understand just the reality of how difficult marriage actually can be. He says, I've heard them say over and over that love shouldn't be this hard; that it should come naturally. In response, I always say something like, why would you believe that? Would someone who wants to play professional baseball say it shouldn't be so hard to hit a fastball? Would someone who wants to write the greatest American novel of her generation say it shouldn't be so hard to create believable characters and compelling narrative? The understandable retort is, but this is baseball, or this is not baseball or literature, this is love. Love should should just come naturally if two people are compatible, if they are truly soulmates. The Christian answer is that there are no two people that are compatible, right? Right? So this is both bad news and good news, right? None of us naturally fit together, right? Both of us bring baggage. Both of us bring um, brokenness into the marriage arena. And none of us are naturally compatible. But the good news for us as Christians is the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us compatible. As Jesus comes in and he begins to rework and reorient things and work through the brokenness that exists in all of our stories, it actually begins to bring us closer together. And that's what James chapter 4 is teaching us. But because we're not overly skilled, like in turning to Jesus as the Savior inside of our relationships and inside of our marriage, we're tempted to settle for some very understandable, but some very real substitutes that fall far short of what God intends of the oneness that we're meant for in marriage. And the first one, and, and everyone goes there in every relationship, is just that we function as business partners, right? That's, this is where the busyness and the business of marriage and partnership like takes over the purpose and the calling of marriage, where we just merely exist with one another. That falls far short of what God has designed for us. And this is a variation of that, but also... Uh, if you function for biz- as business partners for very long, then you'll, you'll kind of have these places inside of your marriage where it becomes very performance-based. Like, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. You scratch my back here, I'll scratch your back over here. And we begin to treat other people, and our spouse in particular, like the way that we're, we're, we're loving them so that we can get something from them, Right? And we end up manipulating and working things to our own advantage. But the reality is that God has created us for so much more. What God has created marriage for is to be this countercultural picture of love that is not based on our performance. It's not based on just merely coexisting. But it's based on the gospel of Jesus Christ where sacrificial love sacrificial unity, and sacrificial joy is the fruit of all that he has created us for. So James 4 is a gift to help us protect that oneness and that unity that marriage is actually created for. And the greatest threat to that oneness is conflict. Look at verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then verse 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So most of us are tempted to think that most of marriage and relationship problems are primarily found outside of us. What James chapter 4 says is that most marriages, marriage problems are found inside of us. Listen to Paul Tripp. He says, you both bring something into your marriage that is destructive to what a marriage needs and must do. And that thing is called sin. Sin. Most of the troubles we face in marriage are not intentional or personal. In most marriage situations, you do not face difficulty because your spouse intentionally did something to make your life difficult. Yes, in moments of anger that may happen, but most of the time what is really happening is that your life is being affected by the sin, weakness, and failure of the person you are living with. So if your wife is having a bad day, that bad day will splash up on you in some way. If your husband is angry with his job, there is a good possibility that he will bring that anger home with him. If you minimize the heart struggle that both of you carried into marriage, here's what will happen. You will tend to turn moments of ministry or moments of ministry into moments of anger. Right? So there's this very real there's very real reality that the greatest problems that exist inside of marriage live inside of us. Right? The good news is that Jesus has already died and paid for all of those things. So he uses some very powerful words there. He uses words w- words like war. Words like murder, right? We not may not be physically guilty of murdering our spouse but i mean certainly can do that with our words certainly can do that in our hearts pretty quickly on a moment's notice and what james is teaching us is that all conflict is rooted in competing desires conflict is rooted in competing desires So what most often happens inside of my own marriage, it's not that we want bad things, but it's just that we want different things, and in those moments, we want those things too much, and we're willing to go to war to get them. If you don't believe conflict is driven in competing desires, I mean, if you're a couple here, I mean, think about the last time you tried to pick a restaurant, right? Friday night, where are we going to go, right? want to go to Chili's. Now, I don't want to go to Chili's, right? I mean, how about Skinny J's? Now, traffic's too bad downtown, don't want to go there. How about Red Lobster? You couldn't pay me to go to Red Lobster on a Friday night, right? I mean, those are the kinds of conversations that we have, and we think that those things are neutral, but in and of themselves, like, there's competing desires that want to break out, and, and most of the time, those are harmless, but the reality is, unchecked, those desires can turn in to full-blown conflicts and full-blown wars, and we can end up murdering one another in our heart. So there's a couple of lies that I think are really easy for us to believe about conflict. And the, the lie number one that I'll say is that if my circumstances were different, I would be different, right? So the primary, the primary problems inside my marriage are my budget or my lack of time management, or if I just had more money, or if I just had more time, or if I just had more margin, or if my kids were just better behaved, like I would be the perfect spouse, right? Because we tend to locate the problems inside of marriage, outside of our marriage, like in all of the circumstances that are around this. And now, Now, now the reality is that it's not wrong to have a budget. It's not wrong to have a calendar. It's not wrong to try to grow in communication. But the primary struggles that we have are inside of us. And when we make our problems primarily outside of us, like our Savior becomes our technique. Our Savior becomes our budget. Our Savior becomes our time instead of Jesus who was crucified for all of these passions that are at war inside of us. Um, I mean, even if our circumstances are ideal, we still have conflict, right? Who's ever been in a conflict on vacation, right? Right? The very first day of every vacation, uh, Jen and I have a conflict. And that's because we have competing desires. We usually go to the beach, and she wants to get up. Almost before sunrise and be the first person out on the beach, and I would like to sleep till three o'clock and watch the sunset, right? And both of those things don't naturally go together. And um, yeah, every time we have um, this, just these, these conflicts that come up because we have competing desires. And thankfully, you know, we're able to humble ourselves and love one another and serve one another. But I mean, that's just, that's just what it's like. Or um, if you've ever been to Disney World, right? I mean, it's supposed to be the happiest place on earth, but it is the home of the most meltdowns on earth from people age two to age 62. Your circumstances don't matter because conflicts come from within, right? So it, it, you know, we're tempted though, to think that everything is outside of us, but really it's the things that are going on inside of us. And this is, a, this is a, a second variation of that same thing. Not if, if my circumstances were different, I'd be different. And then this is a little more hits home. If my spouse were different, I'd be different, right? Like the reason that I struggle with anger is because they keep doing that, right? And we blame, all right, this Garden of Eden stuff. If, if she would stop doing that, then I could be a better husband over here right? So we blame all of our problems like on our spouse. We say it's her fault. It's his fault, right? But what James 4 says is that conflict comes from the passions that are at war within us. Circumstances don't cause sin. They reveal them, right? So our hearts are like a sponge. Whatever's inside of them is going to eventually come out So, I mean, you can use Jesus as an example, right? I mean, he was the most sinned against man in the history of the world. But what came out of him was an appropriate response, whether it was love or forgiveness or justice. All of those things came out. But for us, if we're not walking in the Spirit and we're not believing the truth of the gospel, what normally comes out is anger or malice or impatience or unforgiveness. And that's because all of these things are going on inside of our hearts. And those are the things that God wants to actually root out of us and bring healing and grace to. The good news is that grace is bigger than all of our sins. Look at verse 6. It says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace the humble. So the only way, right? Married couples, eye contact. The only way to win a a conflict is a race to humility, right? That is the only way to win. Whoever gets to the grace of God first wins, right? So there's this reality, like, Our sin is real and it's broken and it causes fights and quarrels and conflicts. And to a certain degree, those things are inevitable until we go home to be with Jesus. But there is this principle at work as we run to him and we humble ourselves before him and before our spouse and before other people that he gives more grace. Right, So the the pathway to healing and the pathway to hope is this path that's paved with humility where we need the grace of God. It begins by seeing like I am just as responsible for all of the problems that exist inside of my marriage as my spouse is. And this is what Paul Tripp says in his book, What Did You Expect? He says, the fact is no one gives grace better than someone who is convinced that he needs it as well right so grace flows from people that are aware that they need grace and so trenton mentioned it when we were doing announcements we believe grace changes everything but that doesn't produce this pride but it produces this humility that we actually need grace the gospel frees us Because we can look at the cross and say, listen, our sin is so bad that it necessitated the death of the Son of God, but also that God was pleased to give His Son in response to all of our sin and rebellion. And as we turn to Him, He gives us more grace. Then Tim Keller says this in The Meaning of Marriage. He says, what does it take to know the power of grace First, it takes humility. If you, if you have trouble forgiving someone, it is at least partly because deep in your understanding of your heart, you're thinking, I would never do anything like that. And I've said that more times than I care to admit, right? Like, I can't believe you did that, right? And what's going on in my heart at that moment is you feel superior to someone. You feel like you're a much better kind of person. You will find it very hard, if not impossible, to forgive, so grace flows towards humility. Grace flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. He gives more grace. And that grace is amazing, and it's humbling, and it's rewarding. And there is there's just literally no situation here that the grace of God can't cover. And God wants to be here, and he wants to be present with us um, to help us to experience what that might look like. So I'm going to give a couple of examples of what this might look like to kind of get underneath the the heart of conflict, and then we're going to go into some times of ministry. The first is, like, statistics tell us or research that the number one cause of conflict in any marriage is money, right? And so what James 4 would say to that is money's not what causes conflict, but money reveals conflict. And so... We were with a group of leaders on Wednesday night, and there's a lot of things. We we did an example where um, in most marriages you have someone that's a saver and you have someone that's a spender. Uh, I think that's generally true. And what's going on in those situations, what's driving someone to be a saver and what's driving someone to be a spender? Oftentimes money conflicts are fear conflicts right because the person that wants to save is finding their safety and their security just in how much money's in the bank and the person that wants to spend sometimes that's not just about being selfish but it's also because there's a fear of missing out or a fear of wanting to blend in and so this these conflicts where a surface level would say hey you need to talk about your budget you need to stick to your budget you need to work on your communication you need to work on compromise but really, at the root of what's going on, oftentimes when we're conflicting over money is there's a fear conflict. There's a God conflict. And the good news for the, where grace begins to flow is when we say, listen, what's really driving me in this moment is I'm afraid if we spend this money that, that we're going to be in trouble, right? And then humility begins to flow. And the other person that wants to spend money in the midst of whatever they're going through, like... The real thing that's going on inside of my heart is, like, I'm afraid that I don't fit in and I don't belong. And when we humble ourselves like that, the gospel for fearful people is that perfect love casts out fear, right? So get below the surface and and get to the reality that, that grace flows. You know, normally, right, most marriage problems can be solved if we get to a level like this is actually something that Jesus died for. Jesus didn't die because we didn't do our budget properly. Jesus died because we're fearful people, and we want to find our security and our rest and our identity and money. And then I'll I'll end with this. This is an example from my own life. Most of the conflicts inside of my marriage, they look something like this. Like I'll come home from a long day at work, or what would seem like a long, heroic day at work, and... um, there's be this idea inside of my head and my heart that, like, I deserve rest, you know. Um, but the circumstances of my life, when I walk through the door, rarely are conducive to rest. So um, if you don't know, I have five children, and um, most of them are excited to greet me when I walk through the door. My wife is there, um, and there are, like, a million things that are going on as I walk through the door. And depending on what happened during the day, like, I normally want to withdraw, and it's not just to find rest, oftentimes it's a little deeper than just being selfish, like something during the day has um, attacked my identity, and so I'm dealing with shame, and so I want to withdraw, and so it'll look like I'm just being very quiet, but I want to go into the other room, And, and I'm not always aware that this is what's going on, but this is normally what's going on, so shame drives me to want to isolate myself and to be alone. Um, shame is at the heart of a lot of conflicts inside of marriage. Like if shame's at work inside your marriage, your spouse might say something like, hey, I don't think I know you very well. It may look like lots of isolation, lots of being alone. Shame oftentimes shows up in the bedroom, you know? I mean, there's lots of brokenness that exists even before we get married. And if those shame issues aren't taken to the cross, I mean, it's going to show up um, when those levels of, oneness are tested so so deeper than just like I need some alone time is like I'm not finding my identity as a son of the king and in those moments I have to humble myself and say listen I I brought home a lot of my job with me today and you know that's what's keeping me away you know and and that's what it looks like is just being humble and saying, like, it's a little bit more than just, I need some alone time. It's actually, there's a war going on inside of me for my own identity, and yeah, we don't do this perfectly all the time by any means. Like, we, by the grace of God, are learning how to humble ourselves inside of marriage, but this is just a, a, an unrelenting reality that if we're going to experience the oneness that God's created us for, that we have to humble ourselves and see grace come to us. Um, I want to I give you, we're going to pray for folks in just a few moments, but I want um, Kevin and Ashley Holmes to come up. They're going to share a little bit of their story with us, um, and they're going to see what redemption looks like um, inside of marriage. So can we welcome them?
1: I'm really nervous,
2: not sure where to hold the mic, so if I'm loud or not loud, just tell me. Um, as Chad said, we're Kevin and Ashley Holmes, and um, we're high school sweethearts from Batesville, and um we've been married. it'll be twenty four years this April. Um, yeah, thank you yeah.
1: because of Jesus,
2: yeah. And you'll see, it's uh, it was not without conflict that you make it 24 years. I think it's probably impossible, but um, anyway. Uh, this is not memorized, so we've, we're going to read it, so just bear with us.
1: When Chad asked us to share our story this week, I'm going to be completely honest. Um, my heart sank, and my flesh really didn't want any part of it. Um, sorry, I'm, like, shaky. <laughs> That doesn't make any better. Thank you. (laughs) That just makes me more more emotional. It does look good, but okay. (laughs) Sorry. If you want to make me cry, put your arm around me. Okay, (laughs) guys, our story is hard. There's so much junk and sin and regret and dysfunction and generational stuff. And Kevin had the same reaction this week. But then we realized, isn't that all of us? See, you shouldn't have put your arm around me. (laughs) No, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. Married or not, we all have hurts and trauma and sin and desperate need for redemption. After praying and taking a moment, we knew we had to share because we are living examples of the redemptive power of Jesus.
2: After a rocky 17 years of marriage, we found ourselves separated, and Ashley was most certainly filing for divorce. And honestly, no one blamed her. I certainly didn't. I started drinking when I was 13, and alcohol had robbed me of everything I held dear. We had been treating the symptoms of our sin in our lives instead of our hearts for years. We were white-knuckling it, And doing things in our own strength. Um, We would have seasons of victory, but our sins would always come back with more force than ever. The enemy had us right where he wanted us.
1: In the silence one day, I heard clearly from God that I needed to wait on filing for divorce. It was so hard not to. It was so hard not to. But I called my attorney and asked him to pause the process. So how do two people go from the brink of divorce to redemption? By being so desperate to change that we were literally face down on the carpet, begging God for forgiveness and deliverance from ourselves. I prayed Psalm 25 and 51 over and over. Spent I had spent our whole marriage trying to get Kevin to act right, always focusing on him, didn't work. And I reeked of pride and self-righteousness. I had been comparing my sin to Kevin's, but instead the Lord said to me one day while I was folding laundry, almost audibly, Stop comparing your sin to Kevin's. You compare yourself to me. Whew, that was a life-changing moment. Because compared to Kevin in the moment, I always looked pretty good. (laughs) This wasn't a story about me and Kevin. It was a story about me and Jesus first, a story about Kevin and Jesus first. And when we gave our hearts fully to him, that is when things started to change.
2: Have you ever begged God for something? I mean, truly begged God. I'm sure there are some of you in here who know exactly what I'm talking about. Following my own plan for life had brought me to a breaking point. And I could continue down that path, hurting myself and those around me, or I could, ju- I could trust God wholly for the first time in my life. To do this, I had to beg God to change my heart. And as an Enneagram 8, I have a hard time trusting anyone beyond myself, God included. So if I really wanted life change, I would have to trust him complete with, completely with my life, no matter what. This is what I begged for. I wanted true submission, true obedience. I wanted all of what Christ had offered. For those of you who have been in similar circumstance, you already know the outcome. God will change your heart. You just have to submit and die to self. Obedience to God's word is key. What that looked like for me was waking up every day and beginning my day with prayer. I would beg God for change and repeat that prayer all day until I lay my head on my pillow at night, and I would thank God for making it through that day and repeat my prayer once more. I simplified my life into asking God to help me do the next right thing in every moment all day.
1: When I fully realized that the enemy was trying to take out my family and destroy my children, I was filled with a righteous anger from the Spirit that was palpable. I put a stake in the ground that day to do everything that the Lord had, was going to ask me to do according to His word and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I'm a visual learner and I'm a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings. Any other fans in here? Okay. Um, I kept visualizing that scene on the bridge with Gandalf. In the first one, the Fellowship of the Ring. Do you all know what I'm talking about? And he keeps slamming down that stake and he says what? You shall not pass. That's the visual I had in my mind of where we were. And I lost my place because I was so into that. Hang on. Okay. I was powerless on my own, but I had an offensive weapon that Jesus himself used in the wilderness against his enemy, our enemy. I had God's word. That's what I fought with. I reminded myself over and over that I was forgiven, 1 John 1, 9, sanctified, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and more than a conqueror, Romans 8, I prayed James 1 for wisdom and to help with my mouth, slow to speak, quick to listen. When anger was bumbling up in me, I would pray Philippians 1, that whatever happens, I would conduct myself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. <sighs> As best I could, I yoked myself up with Jesus, which is Matthew eleven thirty, and I clothed myself with humility, Colossians three twelve. In 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, we are told that God gives us a way out when temptation comes, and this is how I did it, with his word, verses every day. I even kept index cards in my purse when that time would come up. You get that out. Using the Lord's words in Matthew 18, I would pray over our family, binding us to the Lord's will in his mind. It takes time, and I could see the Lord working the same in Kevin. I could see the Lord redeeming and restoring all the broken places.
2: Philippians 127 became our kind of our saying, and it we, we may have fell out a little bit. Shortened it to whatever happens. So in any event, we just said, whatever happens.
1: I even started it saying, no matter what Kevin does. I will conduct myself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ.
2: I never said that.
1: I dropped that after a while. That was my pride. So righteousness <laughs> you know. Yeah.
2: But God redeemed our marriage. He took two broken people who were all in for the first time and used his word, his spirit, and his people to change us from the inside out. We spent over a year in professional Christian counseling and recovery. The most amazing people came alongside us and helped us along the way. We didn't deserve it, but God did it anyway. He poured out his love and grace on us. Neither of us knew what the outcome would be when we begged God to help us be obedient. We only knew that his way was all we wanted. It's still a daily struggle. I want to be clear. Prayer, God's holy word, and Christian community is paramount in our daily lives. God used all of these things to bring us out of the pit of sin and into a healthy marriage. Today, we don't take our marriage for granted. We both remember all too vividly what can happen when we take control of our own lives. The consequences of doing it our own way keep us running back to him. And my prayer is that we'll never forget that God is our redeemer.
0: Thank you guys so much um, said this wonderful this picture of the father just rejoicing over you saying well done good and faithful servants thank you for sharing your story thanks for humbling yourself Um, we all have to have those kinds of moments and um i want to go ahead and invite um caroline parsons to come up she's going to pray because